When I first read Rosalind Cash's Wikipedia back-to-back with Harry Houdini's, it felt backwards to me that someone would ask to be handcuffed and jailed in a nation where so many people are handcuffed or jailed without justification. Harry Houdini regularly approached the police to help him set up his stunts, while the stories told by black Americans casting Rosalind Cash often featured police who wouldn't help ensure safety or comfort or rights, let alone lend a pair of handcuffs for an escape act. On the other hand, Harry Houdini can be seen as a groundbreaking immigrant hero whose magical escape symbolized breaking free of oppression and bondage. The story can be told a handful of ways. The only thing I know for certain is the that the two have in common is that they both died on Halloween. Today, instead of releasing a full episode, this is the Wikipedia page readings for Rosalind Cash and for Harry Houdini. Enjoy. Rosalind Teresa Cash, born December 31, 1938, and died on October 31, 1995, was an American actress, voice artist, and singer. Her best-known film role is in the 1971 science fiction film The Omega Man. Cash also had another notable role as Mary May Ward in ABC's General Hospital, a role she portrayed from 1994 until her death in 1995. Her education is from City College of New York. Early Life and Education Cash was the second of four children born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, to John O. Sr., a clerk, and Martha Elizabeth Cash. Her siblings were John Jr., Robert, and Helen. Cash graduated with honors from Atlantic City High School in 1956. After high school, Cash attended City College of New York. Her career extended to theater, television, film, and recording. Career Cash appeared in the 1962 revival of Fiorello, and was an original member of the Negro Ensemble Company founded in 1960. In 1973, Cash played the role of Goneril in King Lear at the New York Shakespeare Festival alongside James Earl Jones's Lear. Cash appeared on the New York area television show Callback, which featured musical director Barry Manilow. The episode Cash was featured on was filmed on Monday evening, March 31st, 1969, at the Village Gate in New York City. The episode aired on Saturday, April 19th, 1969, at 3.30 p.m on CBS. Cash performed God Bless the Child on the show. No recordings of the performance are known to exist. Her other television credits include The Cosby Show, What's Happening, A Different World, Good Times, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Kojak, Barney Miller, Benson, Policewoman, Family Ties, Head of the Class, The Golden Girls, and L.A. Law. Cash was nominated for an Emmy Award for her work on the public broadcasting service production of Go Tell It on the Mountain. In 1996, she was posthumously nominated for an Emmy Award, Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series, for her role on General Hospital. Cash's films included Omega Man, Clute, The New Centurions with George C. Scott, Uptown Saturday Night with Sidney Portier, and Wrong is Right. In 1995, she appeared in Tales from the Hood, her last film performance. Cash supplied the voices of Sesame Street Muppet Roosevelt Franklin's mother and his sister, Mary Frances, on the 1970 record album The Year of Roosevelt Franklin, Gordon's friend from Sesame Street, alongside Matt Robinson's voices for Roosevelt and his brother Baby Ray and friend A.B. Sito. Cash never married nor had children. She died of cancer on October 31, 1995 at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, aged 56.
Harry Houdini, born Eric Weiss, on March 24th, 1874, and died on October 31st, 1926, was a Hungarian-born American illusionist and stunt performer noted for his sensational escape acts. He first attracted notice in vaudeville in the United States, and then as Harry Handcuff Houdini on a tour of Europe, where he was challenged police forces to keep him locked up. Soon, he extended his repertoire to include chains, ropes slung from skyscrapers, straitjackets underwater, and having to escape from and hold his breath inside a sealed milk can with water in it. His spouse was Wilhelmina Beatrice Bess Rahner, and his brother was Theodore Hardin. In 1904, thousands watched as he tried to escape from special handcuffs commissioned by London's Daily Mirror, keeping them in suspense for an hour. Another stunt saw him buried alive and only just able to claw himself to the surface, emerging in a state of near breakdown. While many suspected that these escapes were faked, Houdini presented himself as the scourge of fake spiritualists. As president of the Society of Magicians, he was keen to uphold professional standards and expose fraudulent artists. He was also quick to sue anyone who imitated his escape stunts. Houdini made several movies, but quit acting when it failed to bring in money. He was also a keen aviator and aimed to become the first man to fly a plane in Australia. Eric Weiss was born in Budapest to a Jewish family. His parents were Rabbi Meyer Samuel Weiss and Cecilia Steiner. Houdini was one of seven children. Weiss arrived in the United States on July 3, 1878, on the SS Frisa with his mother, who was pregnant, and his four brothers. The family changed their name to the German spelling Weiss, and Eric became Eric. The family lived in Appleton, Wisconsin, where his father served as rabbi of the Zion Reformed Jewish Congregation. According to the 1880 census, the family lived on Appleton Street in an area that is now known as Houdini Square. On June 6, 1882, Rabbi Weiss became an American citizen. Losing his job at Zion in 1882, Rabbi Weiss and family moved to Milwaukee and fell into dire poverty. In 1887, Rabbi Weiss moved with Eric to New York City, where they lived in a boarding house on East 79th Street. He was joined by the rest of the family once Rabbi Weiss found permanent housing. As a child, Eric Weiss took several jobs, making his public debut as a nine-year-old trapeze artist, calling himself Eric the Prince of the Air. He was also a champion cross-country runner in his youth. Magic career. When Weiss became a professional magician, he began calling himself Harry Houdini after the French magician Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin after reading Robert Houdin's autobiography in 1890. Weiss incorrectly believed that an I at the end of the name meant like in French. In later life, Houdini claimed that the first part of his new name, Harry, was an homage to Harry Keller, whom he also admired, though it was more likely adapted from Airy, a nickname for Eric, which is how he was known to his family. When he was a teenager, Houdini was coached by the magician Joseph Wren at the Pastime Athletic Club. Houdini began his magic career in 1891, but had little success. He appeared in a tent act with strongman Emile Giraud. He performed in dime museums and sideshows, and even doubled as the wild man at a circus. Houdini focused initially on traditional card tricks. At one point, he billed himself as the king of cards. Some, but not all, professional magicians would come to regard Houdini as a competent, but not particularly skilled sleight-of-hand artist, lacking the grace and finesse required to achieve excellence in that craft. He soon began experimenting with escape acts. In 1894, while performing with his brother Dash Theodore at Coney Island as the Brothers Houdini, Houdini met a fellow performer, Wilhelma Beatrice Bess Rahner. Bess was initially courted by Dash, but she and Houdini married, with Bess replacing Dash in the act. 
which became known as the Houdinis. For the rest of Houdini's performing career, Bess worked as his stage assistant. Houdini's big break came in 1899 when he met manager Martin Beck in St. Paul, Minnesota. Impressed by Houdini's handcuffs act, Beck advised him to concentrate on difficult escapes and booked him on the Orpheum vaudeville circuit. Within months, he was performing at the top vaudeville houses in the country. In 1900, Beck arranged for Houdini to tour Europe. After some days of unsuccessful interviews in London, Houdini's British agent, Harry Day, helped him get an interview with C. Dundas Slater, then manager of the Alhambra Theatre. He was introduced to William Melville and gave a demonstration of escape from handcuffs at Scotland Yard. He succeeded in baffling the police so effectively that he was booked at the Alhambra for six months. His show was an immediate hit and his salary rose to $300 a week, equivalent of $9,220 in 2019. Between 1900 and 1920, he appeared in theaters all over Great Britain, performing escape acts, illusions, card tricks, and outdoor stunts, becoming one of the world's highest paid entertainers. He also toured the Netherlands, Germany, France, and Russia, and became widely known as the Handcuff King. In each city, Houdini challenged local police to restrain him with shackles and lock him in their jails. In many of these challenge escapes, he was first stripped, nude, and searched. In Moscow, he escaped from a Siberian prison transport van, claiming that had he been unable to free himself, he would have had to travel to Siberia, where the only key was kept. In Cologne, he sued a police officer, Warren Graff, who alleged that he made escapes via bribery. Houdini won the case, and when he opened the judge's safe, he later said the judge had forgotten to lock it. With his newfound wealth, Houdini purchased a dress said to have been made for Queen Victoria. He then arranged a grand reception where he presented his mother in the dress to all their relatives. Houdini said it was the happiest day of his life. In 1904, Houdini returned to the U.S. and purchased a house for $25,000, equivalent to $711,000 in 2019, a brownstone in Harlem, New York City. While on tour in Europe in 1902, Houdini visited Blois with the aim of meeting the widow of Emile Houdin, the son of Jean-Eugene Robert Houdin, for an interview and permission to visit his grave. He did not receive permission, but still visited the grave. Houdini believed that he had been treated unfairly and later wrote a negative account of the incident in his magazine, claiming he was treated most discourteously by Madame W. Emile Robert Houdin. In 1906, he sent a letter to the French magazine Illusionist stating, You will certainly enjoy the article on Robert Houdin I am about to publish in my magazine. Yes, my dear friend, I think I can finally demolish your idol, who has so long been placed on a pedestal that he did not deserve. In 1906, Houdini created his own publication, The Conjurer's Monthly Magazine. It was a competitor to The Sphinx, but was short-lived and only two volumes were released until August 1908. Magic historian Jim Steinmeier has noted that Houdini couldn't resist using the journal for his own crusades, attacking his rivals, praising his own appearances, and subtly rewriting history to favor his view of magic. From 1907 and throughout the 1910s, Houdini performed with great success in the United States. He freed himself from jails, handcuffs, chains, ropes, and straitjackets, often while hanging from a rope in sight of street audiences. Because of his imitators, Houdini put his handcuff act behind him on January 25, 1908, and began escaping from a locked, water-filled milk can. The possibility of failure and death thrilled his audiences. Houdini also expanded his repertoire with his Escape Challenge Act, in which he invited the public to devise contraptions to hold him. These included nailed packing crates, sometimes lowered into water, riveted boilers, wet sheets, mailbags, and even the belly of a whale that had washed ashore in Boston. Brewers in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and other cities challenged Houdini to escape from a barrel after they filled it with beer. 
Many of these challenges were arranged with local merchants in one of the first uses of mass tie-in marketing. Rather than promote the idea that he was assisted by spirits, as did the Davenport brothers and others, Houdini's advertisements showed him making his escapes via dematerializing, although Houdini himself never claimed to have supernatural powers. After much research, Houdini wrote a collection of articles on the history of magic, which were expanded into The Unmasking of Robert Houdin, published in 1908. In this book, he attacked his former idol, Robert Houdin, as a liar and a fraud for having claimed the invention of automata and effects such as aerial suspension, which had been in existence for many years. Many of the allegations in the book were dismissed by magicians and researchers who defended Robert Houdin. Magician Jean Hugard would later write a full rebuttal to Houdini's book. In 1913, Houdini introduced the Chinese water torture cell, in which he was suspended upside down in a locked glass and steel cabinet, full to overflowing with water, holding his breath for more than three minutes. He would go on performing this escape for the rest of his life. During his career, Houdini explained some of his tricks and books written for the Magic Brotherhood. In Handcuff Secrets, 1909, he revealed how many locks and handcuffs could be opened with properly applied force, others with shoestrings. Other times, he carried concealed lockpicks or keys. When tied down in ropes or straitjackets, he gained wiggle room by enlarging his shoulders and chest, moving his arms slightly away from his body. His straitjacket escape was originally performed behind curtains, with him popping out free at the end. Houdini's brother, who was also an escaped artist, billing himself as Theodore Hardin, discovered that audiences were more impressed when the curtains were eliminated so they could watch him struggle to get out. On more than one occasion, they performed straitjacket escapes while dangling upside down from the roof of a building in the same city. For most of his career, Houdini was a headline act in vaudeville. For many years, he was the highest paid performer in American vaudeville. One of Houdini's most notable non-escape stage illusions was performed at the New York Hippodrome, where he vanished a full-grown elephant from the stage. He had purchased this trick from the magician Charles Mort. In 1923, Houdini became the president of Martinka & Co., America's oldest magic company. The business is still in operation today. He also served as president of the Society of American Magicians, a.k.a. SAM, from 1917 until his death in 1926. Founded on May 10, 1902, in the back room of Martinka's Magic Shop in New York, the society expanded under the leadership of Harry Houdini during his term as national president from 1917 to 1926. Houdini was magic's greatest visionary. He sought to create a large, unified national network of professional and amateur magicians. Wherever he traveled, he gave lengthy, formal address to the local magic club, made speeches, and usually threw a banquet for the members at his own expense. He said, the magicians' clubs are, as a rule, small. They are weak, but if we were amalgamated into one big body, the society would be stronger, and it would mean making the small clubs powerful and worthwhile. Members would find a welcome wherever they happened to be, and conversely, the safeguard of the city-to-city -city hotline to track exposures and other undesirables. For most of 1916, while on his vaudeville tour, Houdini had been recruiting at his own expense local magic clubs to join Sam in an effort to revitalize what he felt was a weak organization. Houdini persuaded groups in Buffalo, Detroit, Pittsburgh, and Kansas City to join. As had happened in London, he persuaded magicians to join. The Buffalo Club joined as the first branch, later assembly, of the society. Chicago Assembly No. 3 was, as the name implied, the third regional club to be established by the SAM, whose assemblies now number in the hundreds. In 1917, he assigned Assembly No. 3's charter into existence, and that charter and this club continued to provide Chicago magicians with a connection to each other and to their past. Houdini dined with, addressed, and got pledges from similar clubs in Detroit, Rochester, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, Cincinnati, and elsewhere. 
This was the biggest movement ever in the history of magic. In places where no clubs existed, he rounded up individual magicians, introduced them to each other, and urged them into the fold. By the end of 1916, magicians clubs in San Francisco and other cities that Houdini had not visited were offering to become assemblies. He had created the richest and longest surviving organization of magicians in the world. It now embraces almost 6,000 dues-paying members and almost 300 assemblies worldwide. In July 1926, Houdini was elected for the ninth successive time president of the Society of American Magicians. Every other president had only served for one year. He was also president of the Magicians Club of London. In the final years of his life, Houdini launched his own full evening show, which he billed as three shows in one, Magic Escapes and Fraud Mediums Exposed. Notable Escapes Mirror Challenge in 1904, the London Daily Mirror newspaper challenged Houdini to escape from special handcuffs that it claimed had taken Nathaniel Hart, a locksmith from Birmingham, five years to make. Houdini accepted the challenge for March 17th during a matinee performance at London's Hippodrome Theatre. It was reported that 4,000 people and more than 100 journalists turned out for the much-hyped event. The escape attempt dragged on for over an hour, during which Houdini emerged from his ghost house, a small screen used to conceal the method of his escape, several times. On one occasion, he asked if the cuffs could be removed so he could take off his coat. The mirror representative, Frank Parker, refused, saying Houdini could gain an advantage if he saw how the cuffs were unlocked. Houdini promptly took out a penknife and, holding the knife in his teeth, used it to cut the coat from his body. Some 56 minutes later, Houdini's wife appeared on stage and gave him a kiss. Many thought that in her mouth was a key to unlock the special handcuffs. However, it has since been suggested that Best did not in fact enter the stage at all and that his theory is unlikely due to the size of the six-inch key. Houdini then went back behind the curtain. After an hour and ten minutes, Houdini emerged free. As he was paraded on the shoulders of the cheering crowd, he broke down and wept. Houdini later said it was the most difficult escape of his career. After Houdini's death, his friend Martin Beck was quoted in Will Goldston's book Sensational Tales of Mystery Men as admitting that Houdini was bested that day and had appealed to his wife Bess for help. Goldston goes on to claim that Bess begged the key from the mirror representative, then slipped it to Houdini in a glass of water. It was stated in the book The Secret Life of Houdini that the key required to open the specially designed mirror handcuffs was six inches long and could not have been smuggled to Houdini in a glass of water. Goldston offered no proof of his account, and many modern biographers have found evidence, notably in the custom design of the handcuffs, that the mirror challenge may have been arranged by Houdini, and that his long struggle to escape was pure showmanship. This escape was discussed in depth on the Travel Channel's Mystery at the Museum in an interview with Houdini expert, magician, and escape artist Dorothy Dietrich of Scranton's Houdini Museum. A full-size design of the same mirror handcuffs, as well as a replica of the Brahma-style key for it, is on display to the public at the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania. A full-size design of the same mirror handcuffs, as well as a replica of the Brahma-style key for it, is on display to the public at the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania. This set of cuffs is believed to be one of only six in the world, some of which are not on display. Milk Can Escape in 1908, Houdini introduced his own original act, the milk can escape. In this act, Houdini was handcuffed and sealed inside an oversized milk can filled with water and made his escape behind a curtain. As part of the effect, Houdini invited members of the audience to hold their breath along with him while he was inside the can. Advertised with dramatic posters that proclaimed, failure means a drowning death, the escape proved to be a sensation. Houdini soon modified the escape to include the milk can being locked inside a wooden chest, being chained or padlocked. 
Houdini performed the milk can escape as a regular part of his act for only four years, but it has remained one of the acts most associated with him. Houdini's brother, Theodore Hardin, continued to perform the milk can escape and its wooden chest variant into the 1940s. The American Museum of Magic has the milk can and overboard box used by Houdini. After lesser magicians proposed variations on the milk can escape, Houdini claimed that the act was copyrighted and settled out of court in 1906, a case with John Klemper, one of the most persistent imitators, who agreed to publish an apology. Suspended Straightjacket Escape One of Houdini's most popular publicity stunts was to have himself strapped into a regulation straitjacket and suspended by his ankles from a tall building or crane. Houdini would then make his escape in full view of the assembled crowds. In many cases, Houdini drew tens of thousands of onlookers who brought city traffic to a halt. Houdini would sometimes ensure press coverage by performing the escape from the office building of a local newspaper. In New York City, Houdini performed the suspended straitjacket escape from a crane being used to build the subway. After flinging his body in the air, he escaped from the straitjacket. Starting from when he was hoisted up in the air by the crane to when the straitjacket was completely off, it took him 2 minutes and 37 seconds. There is a film footage at the Library of Congress of Houdini performing the escape. Films of his escapes are also shown at the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania. After being battered against a building in high winds during one escape, Houdini performed the escape with a visible safety wire on his ankle so he could be pulled away from the building if necessary. The idea for the upside-down escape was given to Houdini by a young boy named Randolph Osborne Douglas when the two met at a performance in Sheffield's Empire Theater. Buried Alive Stunt Houdini performed at least three variations on a Buried Alive stunt during his career. The first was near Santa Ana, California in 1915 and almost cost Houdini his life. Houdini was buried without a casket in a pit of earth six feet deep. He became exhausted and panicked while trying to dig his way to the surface and called for help. When his hand finally broke the surface, he fell unconscious and had to be pulled from the grave by his assistants. Houdini wrote in his diary that the escape was very dangerous and that the weight of the earth is killing. Houdini's second variation on Buried Alive was an endurance test designed to expose mystical Egyptian performer Raman Bey, who had claimed to use supernatural powers to remain in a sealed casket for an hour. Houdini bettered Bey on August 5, 1929 by remaining in a sealed casket or coffin submerged in the swimming pool of New York's Hotel Shelton for one and a half hours. Houdini claimed he did not use any trickery or supernatural powers to accomplish this feat, just controlled breathing. He repeated the feat at the YMCA in Worcester, Massachusetts on September 28, 1926, this time remaining sealed for 1 hour and 11 minutes. Houdini's final Buried Alive was an elaborate stage escape that featured his full evening show. Houdini would escape after being strapped in a straitjacket, sealed in a casket, and then buried in a large tank filled with sand. While posters advertising the escape exist, it is unclear whether Houdini ever performed Buried Alive on stage. The stunt was to be a feature escape of his 1927 season, but Houdini died on October 31, 1926. The bronze casket Houdini created for the Buried Alive was used to transport Houdini's body from Detroit to New York following his death on Halloween. Movie Career In 1906, Houdini started showing films of his outside escapes as part of his vaudeville act. In Boston, he presented a short film called Houdini Defeats Hockenschmidt. George Hockenschmidt was a famous wrestler of the day, but the nature of their contest is unknown as the film is lost. In 1909, Houdini made a film in Paris for Cinema Lux titled Marvelous Exploits of the Famous Houdini in Paris. 
It featured a loose narrative designed to showcase several of Houdini's famous escapes, including his straitjacket and underwater handcuff escapes. That same year, Houdini got an offer to star as Captain Nemo in a silent version of 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, but the project never made it into production. It is often erroneously reported that Houdini served as special effects consultant on the Wharton International Cliffhanger serial The Mysteries of Myra, shot in Ithaca, New York, because Harry Grossman, director of The Master Mystery, also filmed a serial in Ithaca at about the same time. The consultants on the serial were pioneering Harry Ward Carrington and Aleister Crowley. In 1918, Houdini signed a contract with film producer B.A. Rolfe to star in a 15-part serial, The Master Mystery, released in November 1918. As was common at the time, the film serial was released simultaneously with a novel. Financial difficulties resulted in B.A. Rolfe Productions going out of business, but The Master Mystery led to Houdini being signed by famous players Lasky Corporation slash Paramount Pictures, for whom he made two pictures, The Grim Game 1919 and Terror Island in 1920. The Grim Game was Houdini's first full-length movie and is reputed to be his best. Because of the flammable nature of nitrate film and their low rate of survival, film historians considered the film lost. One copy did exist, hidden in the collection of Private Collector, only known to a group of magicians that saw it. Dick Brooks and Dorothy Dietrich of the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania, had seen it twice on the invitation of the collector. After many years of trying, they finally got him to agree to sell the film to Turner Classic Movies, who restored the complete 71-minute film. The film, not seen by the general public for 96 years, was shown by TCM on March 29, 2015, as a highlight of their yearly four-day festival in Hollywood. While filming an aerial stunt for the Grim Game, two biplanes collided in mid-air with a stuntman doubling Houdini dangling by a rope from one of the planes. Publicity was geared heavily toward promoting this dramatic caught-on-film moment, claiming it was Houdini himself dangling from the plane. While filming these movies in Los Angeles, Houdini rented a home in Laurel Canyon. Following his two-picture stint in Hollywood, Houdini returned to New York and started his own film production company called the Houdini Picture Corporation. He produced and starred in two films, The Man from Beyond and Haldine of the Secret Service. He also founded his own film laboratory business called the Film Development Corporation, FDC, gambling on a new process for developing motion picture film. Houdini's brother, Theodore Hardeen, left his own career as a magician and escape artist to run the company. Magician Harry Keller was a major investor. Neither Houdini's acting career nor FDC found success, and he gave up on the movie business in 1923, complaining that the profits are too meager. In April 2008, Kino International released a DVD box set of Houdini's surviving silent films, including The Master Mystery, Terror Island, The Man from Beyond, Haldane of the Secret Service, and Five Minutes from the Grim Game. The set also includes newsreel footage of Houdini's escape from 1907 to 1923. In 1909, Houdini became fascinated with aviation. He purchased a French voice and biplane for $5,000, equivalent to $137,000 in 2019, and hired a full-time mechanic, Antonio Brassic. After crashing once, he made his first successful flight on November 26 in Hamburg, Germany. The following year, Houdini toured Australia. He brought along his Weizen biplane with the intention to be the first person in Australia to fly. After completing his Australian tour, Houdini put the Voisin into storage in England. He announced he would use it to fly from city to city during his next music hall tour, and even promised to leap from it handcuffed, but he never flew again. Debunking Spiritualists In the 1920s, Houdini turned his energies toward debunking psychics and mediums, a pursuit that inspired and was followed by latter-day stage magicians. Houdini's exposing of phony mediums has inspired other magicians to follow suit, including the amazing Randy, Dorothy Dietrich, Penn and & Teller, and Dick Brooks. 
Before Houdini died, he and his wife agreed that if Houdini found it possible to communicate after death, he would communicate with the message, Rosabelle Believe, a secret code which they agreed to use. Rosabelle was their favorite song. Bess held yearly seances on Halloween for 10 years after Houdini's death. She did claim to have contact through Arthur Ford in 1929 when Ford conveyed the secret code, but Beth later learned that the incident had been faked. The tradition of holding a seance for Houdini continues, held by magicians throughout the world. The official Houdini seance was organized in the 1940s by Sidney Hollis Radner, a Houdini aficionado from Massachusetts. Yearly Houdini seances are also conducted in Chicago at the Excalibur nightclub by necromancer Neil Tobin on behalf of the Chicago Assembly of the Society of American Magicians, and at the Houdini Museum in Scranton by magician Dorothy Dietrich, who previously held them at New York's Magic Townhouse, with such magical notables as Houdini biographers Walter B. Gibson and Milborn Christopher. In 1926, Harry Houdini hired H.P. Lovecraft and his friend C.M. Eddy Jr. to write an entire book about debunking religious miracles, which was to be called The Cancer of Superstition. Houdini had earlier asked Lovecraft to write an article about astrology for which he paid $75, equivalent to over $1,000 in 2019. The article does not survive. Lovecraft's detailed synopsis for cancer does survive, as do three chapters of the treatise written by Eddy. Houdini's death derailed the plans, as his widow did not wish to pursue the project. Houdini made the only known recordings of his voice on Edison wax cylinders on October 29, 1914, in Flatbush, New York. On them, Houdini practices several different in introductory speeches for his famous Chinese water torture cell. He also invites his sister Gladys to recite a poem. Houdini then recites the same poem in German. The six wax cylinders were discovered in the collection of magician John Maholland after his death in 1970. They are part of the David Copperfield collection. Personal life. Houdini became an active Freemason and was a member of the St. Cecile Lodge number 568 in New York City. In 1904, Houdini bought a New York City townhouse in Harlem and lived in it with his wife Bess and various other relatives until his death in 1926. In March 2018, it was purchased for $3.6 million dollars. A plaque affixed to the building by Historical Landmark Preservation Center reads, The magician lived here from 1904 to 1926, collecting illusions, theatrical memorabilia, and books on psychic phenomena and magic. In 1918, he registered for selective service as Harry Handcuff Houdini. Death Harry Houdini died of perontonitis, secondary to a ruptured appendix, on October 31, 1926, at Detroit's Grace Hospital, aged 52. In his final days, he believed that he would recover, but his last words before dying were reportedly, I'm tired of fighting. I do not want to fight anymore. Witnesses to an incident at Houdini's dressing room in the Princess Theatre in Montreal speculated that Houdini's death was caused by a McGill University student, Jocelyn Warden Whitehead, who repeatedly struck Houdini's abdomen. It is unclear whether the dressing room incident caused Houdini's eventual death, as the relationship between blunt trauma and appendicitis is uncertain. One theory suggests that Houdini was unaware he was suffering from appendicitis, but might have been aware had he not received blows to the abdomen. After taking statements, Houdini's insurance company concluded that the death was due to the dressing room incident and paid double indemnity. Houdini Gravesite Houdini's funeral was held on November 4, 1926, in New York, with more than 2,000 mourners in attendance. A statuary bust was added in 1927, a rarity because graven images are forbidden in Jewish cemeteries. In 1975, the bust was destroyed by vandals. Temporary busts were placed at the grave until 2011 when a group who to be called the Houdini Commandos from the Houdini Museum in Scranton placed a permanent bust with permission of Houdini's family and of the cemetery. The Houdini gravesite 
Restoration Committee under the chairmanship of National President David Bowers is working closely with National President Kenrick Ice McDonald to see the project to completion. Bowers said it is a foregone conclusion that the Society will approve the funding request because Houdini is responsible for the Society of American Magicians being what it is today. We owe a debt of gratitude to him. Like Bowers, McDonald said the motivation behind the repairs is to properly honor the grave of the Babe Ruth of magicians. This is hallowed ground, he said. When you ask people about magicians, the first thing they say is Harry Houdini. To this day, the society holds a broken wand ceremony at the grave every November. Houdini's widow, Bess, died of a heart attack on February 11, 1943, aged 67, in Needles, California, while on a train en route from Los Angeles to New York City. She had expressed a wish to be buried next to her husband, but instead was interred 35 miles due north as her Catholic family refused to allow her to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Proposed Exhumation on March 22, 2007, Houdini's grandnephew, the grandson of his brother Theo, George Hardeen, announced that the courts would be asked to allow exhumation of Houdini's body to investigate the possibility of Houdini being murdered by spiritualists, as suggested in the biography The Secret Life of Houdini. In a statement given to the Houdini Museum in Scranton, the family of Bess Houdini opposed the application and suggested it was a publicity ploy for the book. In 2008, it was revealed the parties involved never filed legal papers to perform an exhumation. Legacy Houdini was a formidable collector and bequeathed many of his holdings and paper archives on magic and spiritualism to the Library of Congress, which became the basis for the Houdini collection in cyberspace. In a posthumous ceremony on October 31, 1975, Houdini was given a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The Magic Castle in Los Angeles, California, a nightclub for magicians and magic enthusiasts, as well as the Clubhouse for Academy of Magical Arts, features Houdini seances performed by magician Misty Lee. The House of Houdini is a museum and performance venue located in Budapest, Hungary. It claims to house the largest collection of original Houdini artifacts in Europe. The Houdini Museum of New York is located at Phantasma Magic, a retail magic manufacturer and seller located in Manhattan. The museum contains several hundred pieces of ephemera, most of which belong to Harry Houdini. In popular culture, Houdini appeared as himself in Weird Tales magazine in three ghost-written fictionalizations of sensational events from his career. The third story, Imprisoned with Pharaohs, was written by horror writer H.P. Lovecraft based on Houdini's notes. In 1953, Houdini was played by Tony Curtis. The Great Houdini is in 1976. He was played by Paul Michael Glasser. In Ragtime, 1981, he was played by Jeffrey DeMunn, based on the novel by E.L. Doctorow, which plays a major role. Houdini is the subject of the song Houdini on the 1982 album The Dreaming by Kate Bush. The album's cover art, in which Bush is depicted holding a key in her mouth and bending in to kiss a chained figure whose face is turned away from the camera, is an homage to Bess Houdini. The Cabinet of Calamari, a 1987 episode of the cartoon series The Real Ghostbusters, has the Ghostbusters against a ghost of Houdini who keeps escaping their ghost traps and a book of stolen Houdini magic notes. In 1999, he was played by Norman Mailer in Crewmaster 2. In the 2014 miniseries called Houdini, he was played by Adrian Brody, and in the 2016 TV series Timeless, he was played by Michael Dreyer. I, uh...
just watched this short film on YouTube with Rosalind Cash, because I'm going to do a bonus episode on Rosalind Cash, because she died on Halloween. And then I was going to do one of Harry Houdini. Is his name Harry or Henry? I think it's Henry. Anyways, Houdini (laughs) also died on Halloween. Did he really die? I guess we don't know. Didn't was it? Didn't he? I'm not trying. I'm not trying to. <laughs> didn't he be like? Am I thinking of the right guy? How do you spell Houdini? <laughs> it's Harry Houdini. H O U D I N I, also known as Harry Handcuff Houdini. <laughs> that is the worst nickname I have ever heard in my life. He died October 31st, 1926, in Detroit. What? And his real name was Eric Weiss. <laughs> Are you looking at this page? This is the great... Dude, Wikipedia is fucked up. <laughs> I'm telling you, Wikipedia is an underrated resource. We all use it all the time, but there is so... It goes crazy. This is the craziest Wikipedia page I've seen in the last two minutes. Is it because of his handcuffed picture? Yeah, that is wild. Allow me to describe this image. It's Houdini in 1980. Nope, 1899. Covered in gigantic locks and chains. Because they don't have contemporary handcuffs in 1899. And he's like, mostly naked? Mostly naked. There's chains around his neck, his elbow, his wrist. And then it just dangles all the way down to his ankles. Harry Houdini, full-length portrait. Standing face front and chain. Where can I buy this? Can you imagine, like, walking into someone's house and they just have it up on their wall? Oh, we have this image. My two sweethearts, Houdini with his mother and wife. I don't like that photo. I mean, in his defense, because all these photos are taken around the year 1900, they're all a little creepy looking. I really thought his death was like a, but I escaped. No, it appears that his appendix ruptured. I bet he was livid. After all that. Uh, so I know why I thought about... I know why I thought his death was a hoax. There's a Drake and Josh episode. Uh-huh. Go on. Where someone whose name is Henry Doheny. That's why I was also like, no, I'm pretty sure his name's Henry. And, um, I think that there's a fake death in it. I'm not positive. Oh, yeah. Henry tells Josh nobody wants him around anymore. Drake and Josh decide to get him recognized again by making him do a show at the premiere. Sorry. He has swords shoved into him in a box by the two, and when they check on him after pulling the swords out, he has no pulse, meaning he died from it. At the funeral, he comes back to life, explaining that the no pulse was his trick and makes Drake and Josh's pants see-through. What? Anyhow, that's why I thought... (laughs) Wait. Can you elaborate on the see-through pants? He did what? At the funeral, he comes back to life <laughs> explaining that the no pulse is his trick. And then make Drake and Josh's pants see-through. Thanks for listening. Please leave a five-star review and let me know who or what to cover in future episodes and bonus episodes. All the best. Nurmer Nurmer. All right.
sorry. I wanted to make a podcast for a really, really, really long time before I was actually able to. And the thing that allowed me to do it was Anchor. Anchor, you can edit the podcast, you can record the podcast, you can invite friends to join it, all on the Anchor app. So you need a phone or a computer. You can go to the library, log in there if you really needed to. You could use an old iPod Touch. It's the most accessible way that I have found to make a podcast because I really thought that you had to spend a bunch of money and get a bunch of production equipment and whatever in order to do it. But when I figured out I could use Anchor as a platform to host the podcast, they distribute it for me. Um, You probably already know this if you've ever listened to an episode before or if you have seen the description with the tag that says that I make it on Anchor. If you want to do this, if you want to get into it, it's super easy. All you have to do is go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app. And I swear it's free. Like, it's it's so easy. It's the easiest, freest, most free way to host a podcast.